Hello and welcome to Dr. Kino's Film Emporium. It's episode two of season two. It's been a long time since uh, I've been talking to you and various reasons why Dr. Kino's had a very busy few months in between the last uh, episode with uh, the all-round good egg that is Marie Findlay and her amazing choices. Uh, this week, we have a good friend and colleague of mine from the University of Winchester. It's Dr. Dan Mattingly and I'm peeking out the window now. Oh yes, here he comes. He's striding manfully down the alleyway to the Emporium. He's got a wonderful beard and a glint in his eye, and he carries off a pair of specs like you would not believe. Dan Mattingly, welcome to the Emporium. Hello, thank you for having me. You're most welcome. Please take a seat in one of our elegant leather wingback chairs. Mm, I'll sniff to a brandy as well, perhaps. Oh, yes, always, you know, and a bowl of peanuts. Yeah, please help mm. yourself. There you go. Lovely. Thank you. Uh, Dan, make yourself comfortable. And so I genuinely don't know at this point what you've brought me. So I can see two very interesting looking films under your arm. What are they? Just a little a little summary, first of all, and then we'll go into a bit more detail later on. So what, what have you brought me? Well, today I've brought two very different films. Uh, the first one is an early 80s indie uh, cult favourite, Alex Cox's Repo Man. Uh-huh. With, uh, Harry Dean Stanton and Emilio Estevez mm-hmm. and the second uh, comes a bit later on but it's almost a throwback to, to the new Hollywood and that is uh, Wonder Boys by Curtis Hansen. Indeed Michael Douglas, Toby yeah. Maguire, right yeah. I've not seen either I know of Wonder Boys I know of Repo Man but yes love to hear your thoughts on those fantastic. Mm-hmm. Before we get stuck into that let's take you back a little way um, not that far because you know you're not that old but also um, really interesting part of the show um, and this is always always interesting usually um, it's usually a children's film that people remember as their first cinematic experience Dan what was the first film you saw at the cinema that you can remember I think the very earliest thing I can remember was a friend's birthday party we went to see Free Willy okay that's, that's 1994 so a good a good year for film <laughs> but not maybe maybe not a good first film memory, but I Indeed. Can, the one that I remember most vividly in closest proximity to that was going to see Jumanji. Okay. With, uh, my mother and my younger brother, who was five years old at the time. And of course this was when after CGI had taken off and you had all of those rampaging rhinos and things. Yeah. And it was a bit intense for him. Mm. So my mum had to take him outside to calm him down. And so I was left in the cinema on my own with you know, all of this spectacle and yeah. you know, crash bang wallop. And again, I, being very sort of young and what have you, it, it was still quite new and novel. But just the idea that you know people made these big immersive experiences really caught my imagination, I think. Yes. Yeah, set your imagination on fire. Like it took you in suture, isn't it really, is the sort of technical term from a thing you get sutured into the film yeah always a good sign when that happens so that kind of set the uh, set the ball rolling in terms of film so let's move on a little bit so with did you start to kind of take more notice of films as you're getting into your teenage years and like start to explore a bit more kind of develop your taste anything from that time that, that mm. sticks in your mind yeah I I think towards 13 14 15 I I definitely started taking more uh, of a I wouldn't have thought of it as scholarly at that time, but more of a scholarly interest in, you know, there are these big films out there that are quite interesting. Um, I was a bit too young to have seen the movie drone program that I think Ah, Alex Cox curated for a while. Indeed, yeah. Very um, personable presenter, yeah. I did pick up stuff. Uh, Mark Kermode used to do um, Uh a late um, thing on Channel 4, and he'd Mm -hmm. sort of, sometimes it would be some foreign 
sort of foreign language thing or a kind of American independent thing, or because it was kind of mode, it was horror quite frequently. Yeah. So <laughs> he um, does like his uh, horror, yes. So I, I got from that Blade Runner, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, various other off the wall delights. And there was some, um, it's a wonderful sign of the times because I, I often, um, unbeknownst to my mother, uh, set up the uh, VCR to record the stuff that took my interest. Oh. I would sort of secretly kind of program the VCR to record these things that I shouldn't have been watching, but I think I was given a bit of leeway with it. Was there a little bit of age restriction involved? Um, yeah. Yeah, was, like, oh, yeah, you really should be watching some of these films because be. you're 14. A tender um, age in my yeah. I learned my lesson with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Take I'm that sure you did. <laughs> Took it over a friend's house. We watched it in daylight with the curtains drawn. Okay. A knock on the window and we both leapt out Freaks of Freaks out. Yeah. <laughs> and you deserve yeah. to as well. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. So this is obviously getting on to you know, a bit more serious stuff now. So university, which university did you go to? I went to Swansea University. Oh, um, and yes. In finest Wales. Yep. Mm-hmm. Finest Wales, uh, four years undergraduate, then another four years for okay. postgrad. And that was for American studies, wasn't it? That wasn't actually film so much, but obviously film is a part of American culture to a huge degree. Yeah, uh, American studies um, for the BA and then actually sidestepped into English Lit for the PhD, PhD. But in a way, I've kind of come back around to the film stuff that I was mm-hmm. doing at undergraduate. So mm-hmm. I've kind of come full circle in a way. Cool. And what was your PhD on? Uh, PhD was on um, American, uh, contemporary American fiction, uh, post postmodern ah. fiction, and looking at it was a, a bit of a cliche, but three writers that write very self reflexive, ironic books, but also mm. that wrestle with questions of sincerity and whether it's possible in an age of irony. Post-modern, and, postmodernism um, and stuff, and yeah, a copy of a copy of a copy and all that sort of thing. That's the yeah. one. Mm. Which authors? Michael Shabon uh, or anyone like that? Or... Well, he he almost made the cut. Ah, um, right. But I um I had to do some editing. Uh, I I settled on uh, David Foster Wallace, Wallace, yeah, Jonathan Franzen, and Dave Eggers. Ah, okay, yes, so, yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, fine writers, all three. And one of those, of course, did write Wonder Boys. Which one was it? Oh, or was that, it Shabon? Uh, Shabon. It was Shabon. Sorry. So and interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because that is a literary adaptation of which we'll talk about more later. Fantastic. So you did your PhD, and you uh, you've actually talked, haven't you? Because we met at the University of Winchester, and we both teach uh, film studies there on a uh, on a casual basis, <laughs> which is. Uh, <laughs> indicative of the uh, current state of uh, of HE in the UK and I'm sure lots of other places too um so any particular which, which films have really made a, a biggest impression on you um mm. you know from not just in, not just sort of in your 20s but I mean what was the sort of film that was kind of like a benchmark film certainly courtesy of Dr Kamode mm. uh, Blade Blade Runner mm-hmm. yeah um, I, I keep coming back to that when I was sort of younger early Tarantino, again, okay. sort of the, the cliched stuff where it, it's kind of stylistically clever and it's mm-hmm. kind of funny, but obviously you know, that has its place, but I've kind of, not that I've left that behind, but I've I kind of... Moved on set, slightly. Yeah, yeah see it yeah, from a bit of a distance. Indeed, yeah. I have to say, uh, when we talked at Winchester earlier this year, uh, watching Pulp Fiction again after a good few years of not seen it, it's kind of, it has dated slightly. I think because possibly because it's been, you know, dare I say, overpraised in some quarters. Um, mm. But again, it's, it's still a really good film, but it's also 
yeah, you feel like you just know it almost too well, I think. So, yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, Blade Runner, I think for me, and this may be heresy for some listeners, yourself included, um, I actually preferred 2049 to the original. I'd say I thought Dennis Villeneuve did an amazing job with the just with the, with um, the whole look of the film and yeah just absolutely fantastic that said the original was a groundbreaking you know just in, in so many ways um and the, yeah and both of us have actually i think used it haven't we in uh, in various lectures and things just to to make uh, students who perhaps haven't seen it um aware because this is the i'd say probably the most uh some not surprising but the there's an assumption um, that people have seen sort of canonical films like Blade Runner and some, and a lot of 18, 19 year olds haven't. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like, well, why should they? They were born in 2000, 2002. It's like, I haven't seen all films from 20 years before I was born, which is going back a fair way, I have to say. So mm-hmm. it's, there is this sense that there's so much, so much cinema now to see and it's getting more of the year. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Dan, let's talk about Repo Man. And Alex mm-hmm. Cox, because Alex Cox is a filmmaker that you don't hear from very much at all these days. If, if you know, I don't know what his last film was, and he's made some, he's made some really interesting stuff. But tell me more about Alex Cox as a filmmaker first of all. British expat over in the states, worked various dead end jobs, uh, went sort of did a bit of film school, did a short film, Edge City, nineteen eighty. That was his first one, and that sort of served as the springboard to Repo Man, which was based in part on his experiences and working in car repossession. Okay. So that, so I don't know if um, he had any, any encounters with um, <laughs> evil federal agents or aliens or nihilistic punks. Maybe he did, but um, it was certainly the, the actual repossession business side of it was um, taken from life. But yeah, he, he's an interesting one. Does Repo Man, does Sid and Nancy, does Straight to Hell. Mm, and then, more of which we'll talk about later, yeah. Yeah, he dabbled in bits and pieces, but I think now he just does a lot of... Um, teaching and very sort of micro budget low budget stuff with his film students okay um, so he's still making films he's still out there doing things yeah because he must be getting on a bit as well because i mean what was he in his 50s or 60s uh, late 60s something like wow, that wow yeah yeah because he was he's quite an interesting looking chap he does look like an old punk doesn't he from, from what i remember of him um doing various um shows on telly and uh, and just he's he's very articulate as well i think he comes across very well and he knows his films back to front as well so repo man 1984 is yeah, that right yeah. Yeah. yeah um and it's got harry dean stanton that fine fine character actor and that really was a really good year for harry dean stanton wasn't it because it was paris texas was it the same year yeah i think with right, vendors yeah. yeah so he thought mm. two classic films that um he's in and also emilio estevez who's uh, of course um martin sheen's son and charlie sheen's brother um neither of which really has much bearing on the actual film but it's one of his first starring roles isn't it or certainly mm. one of his first films so tell me about this film it's um the repo man is the the things in the title but the, the, the plot is is what um basically the plot is um 1984 los angeles middle of the reagan era and there's a 1964 chevy malibu with some dead aliens in the trunk being driven around by a mad scientist um, it's a hot car, literally, because they seem to be radioactive. And <laughs> it is being pursued by various people, government agents, cultists, and various repossession people, who, because the car has been uh, marked as being worth 20 grand. And they think it's worth 20 grand because it's got drugs in it, or it's got some other thing, but it's because of these aliens. And essentially, Emilio Estevez is a, a young kind of 
nihilistic punk gets canned from his supermarket job and gets recruited without realizing it by Harry Dean Stanton as a repo man. Uh, there's a wonderful scene. He gets re- roped into retrieving a car. He drops it off and um, he's at the repo office and the secretary gives him some, says, I don't want to be no repo man. She says, it's too late. You already are. And gives him some, <laughs> gives him some cash. And it's like, like, oh, what, oh, what, <laughs> what happened there? <laughs> and, and basically the, the rest of the film sort of meanders between these vignettes of him with Bud played by Harry Dean Stanton and some of the other repo men and their interactions with various weirdos all converging back on the repo lot as the car is sort of tracked down. And yeah, it, it's it's very quirky. It's very idiosyncratic, defiantly uncommercial. Mm, yes, and of course, that's, you know, the part of the feature of Alex Cox is he makes films for himself, I think, and his audiences rather than necessarily for the studio. So do you know who actually funded it? Was it like one of those kind of very low-budget efforts that managed to attract some, you know, decent actors? And Yeah, I think... If I remember correctly, a guy called Michael Naismith, who I think had something to do with the monkeys. Ah, yes, that would be yeah, Mike Naismith. Um, mm. His mum actually invented Tipex, ah. believe it or not. Seriously, this is a, <laughs> this is a genuine thing. Mike Naismith's mum invented Tipex, or liquid paper, as it was in the, in the states. And I think she was a she was a secretary, and she sort of basically formulated this uh, this yes this white paint that uh, helped make mistakes. Of course, this is in the days of typewriters rather than computers. So, yeah, um, I know that he he got into producing, I think. He's actually funded a lot of uh, things. I didn't know that he was, um, he funded Reaper Man. Fantastic. Love it. Love John and the Dots. Great. Mm. Okay, so it's not particularly big budget. Does it, is it, is the film bigger than its budget as it as it looks? Is it like, is there, because some film, some filmmakers are really good at making a small budget look much bigger. If you're looking for polish, I mean, it's not kind of shaky cameras or, mm-hmm. you know, I think the the film stock's a bit grainy, um, but it has a proper soundtrack. It has a, a soundtrack provided by the Circle Jerks and LA hardcore oh, yeah. band. Of course, um, yeah. Biggie yeah. Pop does the title tune. That's going to be a good thing, first of all. Yes, that's not yeah, bad that's, getting the Easter in. So that, yeah, that's like that. you on it. Um, oh, yes. But yeah, the, as far as special effects goes, the aliens are condoms with Hawaiian skirts wrapped around them. Um, Just in description. <laughs> at the end of the film, when the cars sort of at its most radioactive, they basically coated the car in uh, reflective paint. It was okay. $600 per tin. And they did the <laughs> interior and the exterior and then shine some lights on it so it has this kind of radioactive glow. glow. Yeah, so not talking high-tech CGI here, but then it was 1984, yeah. so fair play. Fair yeah. play to Alex Cox. What are the performances like? I mean, Harry Dean Stanton could, you know, yeah, he could be in a vinegar commercial and he'd still be really good. I mean, is he good in this? Has he got that sort of, yeah. you know, uh, laconic world weariness she does so well definitely um it's the i think it's the robert, e, robert ebert rule that any film with harry dean stanton or m emmett walsh is worth watching and always yeah. yeah he's he basically just owns the film completely curmudgeonly grumpy um he does some wonderful inventive riffing swearing he has this little speech about the repo code. <laughs> I mean, people, don't have a code. people don't have a code anymore, kids. Yep, <laughs> you know, yep, it's like yeah, my little, isn't it, off the wire, yeah. like, gotta have, man's got to have a code. <laughs> yeah, and it's Reagan's America, so, you know, uh, LA, LA looks like shit, and mm-hmm. um, Otto's parent, the Emilio Estevez's character's parents are these kind of burned-out hippies who've given away all of his college money to a televangelist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, you know, so it's pretty 
dire times to be. Yeah, quite a bit of a satire on on modern America yeah. as well. Excellent. But, okay. but going back going back to Harry Dean, he is just completely grizzled and kind of he's, he's he, he really owns the film. Cool. Uh, What's the yeah. Cool. Uh, so apparently he was a nightmare to work with. Oh no! Oh, I really yeah. hope that wasn't true. But obviously, sometimes <laughs> your heroes uh, aren't always very nice. Never meet your heroes, apparently. Yeah. Oh, in what way? Do you know any any juicy gossip? Or... Well, he. I think he didn't take Alex Cox seriously. He said he sort of ah. came into it saying, um, "Oh, you know, I've worked with Monte Hellman, who did Two mm-hmm. Lane, Lane Blacktop, Blacktop yeah. um, Francis Coppola. And you know why I was good in their films? Because they let me do what I want, not uh, right, right, yeah." He said, if I, want to read, if I want to read my lines off of a card held off screen, I want to do that. And Alex Cox is like, if you don't do that, you know, Screen Actors Guild will fire you, which was mm. a lie. But after that, right. he sort of cooperated. Okay. Um, and also there was a scene where he's swinging a baseball bat at somebody. He wanted to use a real baseball bat and it came within <laughs> millimetres of the poor guy's face. Whoa. And he was like, I, I want him to use a plastic bat. And he says, Harry Dean Stanton doesn't use a plastic bat. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> so, but... If you forgive him for that, because he's yeah. just so wonderful in it. But yeah, uh, what about Emilio Estevez? How does he hold up against um, a presence like uh, like HDS? Kind of an interesting study in contrasts. Not, mm, not kind of yeah. callow, callow youth, but mm. certainly kind of um, irreverent and um, disrespectful and snarky, which is just what you, you would expect from a kind of a, a suburban teenage punk in LA yeah. in 1984, really. Fair play. Yeah. So he basically like plays pretty well. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. It's got a bit of a cult reputation, hasn't it? Um, Repo Man. Mm-hmm. It's, and I mean, the central question is, you know, is it, is it, does it deserve its cult reputation? And well, why? it's funny. I was reading up on, um, you know, the definition or understanding of cult films before doing this. And, you know, there's this discussion now about can a film really be cult if, everything is instantly accessible online and if things mm. are in circulation so easily. And also when you have studios trying to manufacture cults. <laughs> yes. Films. So Snakes on a Plane being the classic example, but then stuff like, I don't know, The Room or things like that, which have sort yeah. of generated... Literally um, just it came organically from one man's insane ego trip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I think, yeah, it, it deserves a kind of cult status just because mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't kowtow to any sense of trying to please the suits or, mm, or what mm. have you there, there is that kind of i keep coming back to the kind of the punky thing but there is mm-hmm. that kind of irreverence and um sprightliness to it disruption so, it's like it is itself it's not trying to be anything else yeah mm-hmm. i think i mean for me cults is it's like it's a particular filmmaker's vision that comes across and it's you know you you know a cult film when you see it it's kind of like yeah this is this is someone's vision and they're not they haven't compromised or um or if there's any happy accidents then that's fine but it's they've kept them in and it's like this is what they you know what you end up with yeah okay we'll hold fire on that one and we'll talk about your next one because this is a really such a different film in so many ways uh and it's wonder boys and as you said it's by it's based on a book by michael shabon and it's a little bit kind of um self-referential self-reflexive isn't it because uh it's about a literary professor uh is it grady tripp Yep, that's the yeah, way. and that's played by Michael Douglas, and mm. he's he's in a bit of a pickle, isn't he? He's kind of like he's basically had writer's block for quite some time, and he's he's also teaching writing, which also can you actually teach writing or not? Maybe, maybe not. And of course, this this ties in with your with your PhD as well. So tell me about tell me about Wonder Boys. I've not seen it. I know that Curtis Hansen, who I love as a filmmaker, 
um, had a go, but it didn't really do that well, did it, at the box office? No. No, do you think it deserves um, to do better? I think, well, there's, there are various stories about this. Um, the Part of it, the initial marketing campaign had a, a big uh, poster with just an image of Michael Douglas made up against type with these big glasses, kind of stubbly face with grey hair and looking, people have compared him to Santa Claus or something. There was a sense, you know, it was missouls to the audience, mm-hmm. that, that kind of promotional image. Um, so it kind of, it bombed on its first run. Then Hanson ah. and um, the team around him sort of lobbied uh, Paramount, who were distributing it, to re-release it, but with a new poster that emphasised it was an ensemble piece and mm. it was a kind of comedy comedy drama. But even then, that didn't save it. Yeah, it's it's um, so kind of a comedy drama piece, a throwback to the 70s sort of character-driven, small, quirky films. And it's it's almost, it sort of meanders its way around. Um, I mean, there there is a plot, but it's a very... Uh, sort of meandering it's I mean the Michael Douglas's character is a, is a pophead and a major league pophead and it kind of <laughs> suits the film that it sort of meanders between this and that it's um, I was thinking you know you could compare it to the Big Lebowski or something that kind okay. of stoner logic of narrative yeah. progression it sort of twists and turns and wins its way lots of synchronicity yeah really it, it's yeah. yeah funny funny coincidences and okay odd, yeah. odd, odd things going on okay because Toby mm-hmm. McGuire's in this and I think um the third Mrs. Tom Cruise as well. Um, what's her name? Mm. Yes. Uh, Katie Hunt. <laughs> Katie Hunt. Yes, Katie. Yes, indeed. Mm. Um, yeah, so are they any good? Um, and is Michael Douglas any good in it? Because if it's a character-driven ensemble mm. piece, you know, Toby Maguire, not a bad actor as well. So, mm. yeah, um, Michael but Douglas, yeah. obviously, he's Michael Douglas. Uh, does he stretch himself much in this? or is he... Well, it's, it's an interesting one because... Um, he was interested in making it, but the, ah. kind of, it's an interesting film for him because obviously through the late 80s, through most of the 90s, he does these leading man, square-jawed, mm-hmm. either kind of police procedurals or erotic thrillers or, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, there's this whole sort of scholarly thing about Douglas as the face of kind of masculinity in the 90s, This like, and, you know, him doing films like Falling Down, where it's mm-hmm. kind of responding to the, you know, the crisis of masculinity. Of masculinity yeah, especially American masculinity, yeah. yeah. Um, but he sort of hits sort of 2000, and he, he picks up this script, Wonder Boys, and says, that's a bit different. And it's, mm-hmm. it's not a glamorous part. You know, he, you know, he's a bit overweight. He's sort of pudgy. He's got grey hair. You know, he prepared for it by eating lots of meatball subs and drinking beer, which sounds great. As far as <laughs> Not a bad uh, life, yes, and get paid some fair amount of money. Um, yeah, he took a, took a bit of a, a, a bit of a hefty pay cut to do it because the mm. studio, obviously, because he normally was a, a quite kind of expensive star to have. Yes, very much so. And he's very, I think, I believe he, I mean, he's a producer as well, isn't he, Michael Douglas? He did a lot of um, producing his time, so he's very aware of the of the financial and economic side of film. So that's good for him for taking a pay cut. Because, um, I mean, it was only a couple of years after this, because this is 2000, is that right? Yeah. The, yeah, yeah, so it was 2002, didn't he? They did Traffic, which he played as you know, a new drug czar and trying to sort out America's drug policy. So interesting that he's taken you know, a number of different roles recently, which is good. Um, does it work as a film? I mean, Dan, I mean, because, you know, Curtis Hansen is a fantastic filmmaker. So you've got, you know, the ingredients and the chef are all there. Does it actually turn out, you know, is, it, is this a case of um, it was just badly marketed? And, you know, do you think it deserves um, better recognition? Well, I, I think it is an acquired taste. I'll, 
I'll sort of put that out there. Um, again, in, in terms of, there, there is a kind of a plot to it, which is this this guy has multiple crises and they all converge on this one weekend. Oh, okay. And, We've all been um, there. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, there's this wonderful supporting cast, Robert Downey Jr. is in it, sort of, ah. sort of in his sort of wild man years before yeah. he has the um, career recovery with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and then mm-hmm. Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francine McDormand's in it. Um, right. Okay. So there's some pretty good actors in this. Yeah. Reliable, solid mm-hmm. character actors. I mean, Robert Downey Jr. pretty much steals the film. Okay. Um, as this egocentric, bipolar book editor. Right. Okay. <laughs> really, you know, so it's a great <laughs> Not role. Not too really. much of a stretch then, really, for <laughs> Robert Downey yeah. Jr. Um, but he, he gets stuck into it and has a has a good go, but. It's um. I mean, I I just I just feel that it, it was maybe not given its due mm. for you know being a, a kind of a, a a kind of a grown up comedy drama that was a kind of has that sort of seventies throwback feel. I think maybe maybe it was just a bit out of time. <clears throat> yes, a little bit misplaced almost. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, because the um, I mean, Curtis Hansen has a yeah the I mean the L.A. Confidential. Um, just you know, Hand Rocks a Cradle, just really, really well crafted films. So, mm. perhaps one of his rare misfires. Um, Direction wise, did he get um, did he get sort of full control, or was it more of a case of studio studio interference? Because a lot of studios like they'll desperately try and recoup their money, which is fair enough because they are a business. But you know, is it sort of a case of if they have to re-release it, would they do it as a director's cut, or what happened with the second release? Um, well, I, I think. He was given free reign to do it. Okay. And um, his the screenwriter Steve Cloves, who I think did mm, Fabulous yes. Baker Boys, he'd been yes, yes, basically hadn't worked for seven years, and then he just decided to adapt this book for the money. But then he found that mm-hmm. he actually quite liked the material. Mm-hmm. Um, Shabon said, you know, make the material your own, which is probably the most healthy That's attitude. Incredibly generous thing to do as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. good for um, Michael Shabon. So it streamlines some of the novel, and obviously it has to cut back on some of the other exposition stuff, mm. but it's still nominally the same story. Okay. And yeah, he he sort of has fun with these characters for an hour and hour and a half, hour and forty minutes, but it, and it just doesn't catch fire with the public. So ah, after this, yeah. of course, he he goes on to do Eight Mile with Eminem. Right. Yes, that, indeed. That yes, yeah. he does yeah. Gangbusters. Um, yeah, yeah, totally different um, beast altogether. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, again, it's just, uh, I think there was, a, there was a review at the time I read when it came out. Again, this is a kind of a teenage film that I, I saw. And it's like, so something like it's, you need to sort of bask in its glow and sort of bask mm. in it, the kind of this, I forget, they compared it to sort of drinking a warm cup of coffee with all the notes and scent or something like that. Okay. Uh, mm. This idea that you, it's not just you sit there and it's a narrative and it's A to B, but it's sort of you imbibe it almost. Yeah, yeah, absorb it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, I, I think it's it's good for that. Okay, I think the campaign to rehabilitate Wonder Boy starts here. Okay, <laughs> um, I mean this this just in linked in with this really is the sort of you know what books actually adapt really well to film, and there's not that many. I think it's, and I think the classic um, from a from a sort of um, production perspective, and this is where I think a lot of people, sort of certainly hardcore Tolkien fans, were not happy about Peter Jackson's adaptation because they wanted the book filmed. And of course you don't do that with an adaptation. You, you actually, you don't just film the book, you actually have to make the book into a film. And that's, that is a painful process if you're really hung up on the book, which I think a lot of Tolkien fans obviously are. And for good reason, you know, I don't, I wouldn't um, judge them for that. 
But I think, I mean, somebody calculated that I've read online, so it must be true. If you'd actually filmed um, Lord of the Rings as it is written, I think you'd be looking at sort of 30 hours of, of film as opposed to probably about 14 because they because he has to miss out a huge amount, you know, and it's like, all right, okay, because um, there's an awful lot of stuff going on. Um, but, yeah, this is where adaptation It's I mean, for me, my favourite probably film that's been adapted from a book is probably The Name of the Rose, which mm-hmm. was uh, Jean-Jacques Arnaud. In 1986, uh, with Christian Slater and uh, the late lamented Sean Connery, and um, brilliantly, a brilliant performance by Ron Perlman as uh, as a very grotesque-looking monk who was just absolutely insanely good, and F. Murray Abraham as a as an inquisitor, Bernard of Guy, and it was it was just a fantastic adaptation. They they made everyone they all looked like they just stepped out of a Hieronymus Bosch painting. The monks looked slightly grotesque. The yeah, it was incredibly well cast, I think. And um, yeah, they uh, they're just a fantastic film all round. And it didn't outstay its welcome as well. It sort of told the story very effectively. And uh, yeah, um, anyone listening, do, do show your thoughts via the, uh, via the email address for Dr. Kino. Um, any books you think would make a good film? Um, and also which of your favourite books have been made into films and whether they worked or not? Um, Dan, what, what's your favourite book that's been made into a film? Um, besides, on the spot slightly, but <laughs> yeah, besides Wonder Boys, I quite like the, uh, the Stephen Frears adaptation of High Fidelity by Nick. Oh Hogan. yes, indeed, yes. So Jack Black, um, John Cusack, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, I think, plays one of the girlfriends. Yeah. Yep, so yeah, I'd say that's a, that's a pretty faithful. It's not faithful adaptation, but it's a very good one. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I go with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think some of some of its. Um, Gender politics have dated a bit badly. Sure, like that but then I think that the might be from the book as well. But yeah, yeah, that was written in the nineties, I believe. So yeah, yeah. Besides that, oh, obviously the Godfather. Mm. Oh yes, classic yeah. example. Yeah, but again, yeah. an example of taking something which is you know pulp and turning it mm-hmm. into something which is more actually on the grand scale. a bit more. Yes, absolutely, like quite epic, really. Um, yeah, Mario Puzo is. Uh, yeah, who actually, I think he tried to be a serious writer and he wasn't really earning very much money at being a serious writer. So he, I think he knocked out The Godfather fairly rapidly and, you know, didn't, you know, didn't try and make it great fiction and it sold really well. And of course, obviously the film got, you know, made it even more. And then he, yeah, sometimes he just, I think, okay, this is, <laughs> this is what I'm good at. <laughs> so go mm-hmm. for it. And, you know, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's, there's a whole area of film theories in there around adaptation about, you know, the, the different mediums and things. And I don't know a huge amount about the theory, but there's the classic thing is, you know, you make the book into a film, you do not film the book. Um, but there's something Dennis um, Lehane, um, so like Mystic River, there's been some, you know, really good and uh, really good adaptations, I think, of of people's work. Um, Sean Penn, I think, also, is it the, um, uh, he did a thing with, I think he adapted uh, Bruce Springsteen's song, um, mm. uh, Highway Patrolman, and did it with with Jack Nicholson. I'm trying to think, it might be the Indian Runner or something else. Oh, but that was, yeah. Sorry, which one? I think that was it, yeah. That was it, the it was the Indian, Indian yeah. yeah. Yeah, and yeah, just, uh, yeah, did a pretty good job. And of course, I mean, again, he, he looks, I think, it's Into the Wild, which I think is one of my favourite films, um, certainly of the, I think, the, of the 2000s, early 2010s, uh, which itself was based on Chris McCandless's um, biography by John Krakauer. And, you know, true story, tragic, but just incredible, a great, a great book and a, and a pretty, a very moving, very inspiring film. So, yeah, regular listeners uh, or people who have certainly listened to season one, um, 
there is the, my, one of my favourite films ever, actually, thinking about it, was always by Russell Banks, and it's The Sweet Hereafter. And that's based on um, a book by Russell Banks. Uh, but, so the film is by Atom Egoyen, a Canadian Armenian director. And I think that's just a fantastic, fantastic uh, film in itself. And the fact it's based on a, on a very, apparently very, very good book as well. So it's, it, it takes quite an art, doesn't it, really, to, uh, to adapt, I think. And uh, so I'd say Wonder Boys, yeah, it sounds like it's uh, underappreciated, which, coincidentally enough, is, is certainly enough to get it into Dr. Kino's Film Emporium. So we will go with that. Uh, Repo Man, yes, I think so. I like a good cult film as much as the next man. And uh, yeah, the I think Alex Cox probably needs to make another film. So Alex, if you're listening, and it's not, you know, you never know, you might do, um, please make another film. And uh, yeah, let's talk about Straight to Hell as well, just for a laugh, because it's got the pogues in it, hasn't it? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. it's a sort of bit of a random chaotic film from what I remember seeing seeing it, bits of it, a very long time ago on a review programme. It, it did look a lot of fun. Shane McGowan, sporting pistols and a sombrero which uh yes brings to mind some interesting images but yeah have you seen it dan or i i i must confess i haven't actually uh, seen that one i just know its reputation as having been you know he just went off to south america with joe strummer and shane mcgowan that's, yes, and, that's right yeah all the other yeah. punks yeah 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 all, all of the things that you're not supposed to do when making a film in terms yeah. of time management and discipline Indeed. and you know just went oh you know we'll just go and smoke a bowl and shoot a scene and off we go. <laughs> you'll be fine you'll be fine we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll sort out in post-production you'll be fine <laughs> it's like no it wasn't i think that bombed badly i remember the adverts in the uh, in the melody maker and the enemy at the time as well so yeah taking me back a, a few good few years mm-hmm. okay we'll draw a veil over straight to hell uh, but sid and nancy i mean he's as a i mean if anyone is interested in alex cox's career I quite enjoyed Sid and Nancy when I saw it. There's, um, it is, if you're not already aware of this film, it is about the early punk days, which Alex Cox probably you know knew a lot of the people, and yeah, lived through. And so there's Johnny Rotten, Sid Vicious, who's played by Gary Oldman, and did a fine job, I thought, as well as uh, as Sid Vicious, aka or you know Simon Ritchie to his mum. There is a bit of a sort of quite a kind of poignant but kind of very darkly comic legend with Sid's Sid, Sid's uh, ashes. Mm. Apparently, his mum. Uh, picked them up from LA, uh, from New York, and um, she was coming home with his ashes after he would after being cremated. And uh, um, she tripped over in Heathrow Airport, and they got sucked into the air conditioning or something. I was like, no, really? <laughs> and apparently, that's a true thing. So yeah, rock and roll, I'd say. But <laughs> I don't know. So it's uh, yeah, people's uh, Hunter S. Thompson got his ashes fired into space. Uh, he just fired on a rocket, didn't they? And he got yeah. an, an enormous firework. Uh, he puts ashes into the uh, mixture and sends him off into the sky. There we go. Yeah. Dan, it's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for bringing your choices. Uh, so that's uh, um, uh, a Repo Man with uh, Harry Dean Stanton, the legend that is Harry Dean Stanton, and Alex Emilio Estevez by Alex Cox. That's from 1984. And also Wonder Boys, an underappreciated uh, literary adaptation of, my, of the Michael Shabon novel, uh, filmed by Curtis Hansen with... Uh, um, Michael Douglas as a dishevelled uh, literary professor and writer, and Toby Maguire, uh, not Kirsten Dunst, so Katie Holmes, mm-hmm. and yes, uh, Francis McDormand and uh, Robert Downey Jr. in a scene-stealing scene. There's a turn even. So yeah, that's from 2000 as well. Yeah. So it's been uh, it's been a great time having you here, and thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, that was Dr. Dan Mattingly uh, from the University of Winchester giving us his choices 
uh, for Dr. Hino's Film Emporium uh, for the second episode. Um, thank you very much for listening, good listeners. And yes, and we'll see you next time for more Under the Radar and Underappreciated Classics. Take care. All best. <laughs>